Welcome to Empathy Media Lab's Belief Street Faith and Labor podcast, where we explore religious concepts through text and scripture, interviews and profiles, and documentaries and films. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab that publishes content on labor, political economy, art, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Matt Bernico about his article published in Sojourners titled, Recent Union Wins Mean It's Time for More Organized Religion. Matt is an independent researcher and journalist, and he has a PhD from European Graduate School in Media Communication. His research and writing tends to focus on the intersections of media, politics, and religion. And uh, Matt, I've been listening to your great podcast, The Magnificast, exploring Christianity and the political left. And I will put that in the show notes and encourage the audience to uh, check that out as well. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. And uh, before we get into the article, could you talk a little bit about your background and how you got interested in that nexus of religion, the church, and organized labor? Yeah, well, it's probably a pretty long story. It's, it's hard to tell your own story, I think. Uh, it's difficult. I guess the way I usually think about this or, or why I'm interested in this particular confluence of things is that I grew up in a pretty evangelical church, by which I mean extremely conservative type of Protestant Christianity. And... You know, the, the emphasis in that particular, you know, branch of Christianity is that above all things, you know, you have to take the Bible extremely seriously. Um, so growing up, that meant doing very embarrassing things like doing Bible quizzing. Um, you know, you read, a, Bible, you read the, a, a book of the Bible and you have to know it and you kind of like uh, go to these events. It's like Scholastic Bowl, but for like Bible nerds. Okay, I've already revealed too much embarrassing information <laughs> about myself. But anyways, that impulse, I think, was kind of a weird line of flight out of conservative Christianity towards, I think, the the sort of milieu of labor, of social justice and Christianity that I'm interested in now. Because, you know, if you start reading the Bible, if you do the thing that evangelicals tell you to, you take the Bible very seriously, you you get a lot of themes that, I, I don't know, you can't do anything else with other than be on the side of working people and poor and low-income people. I think one, <laughs> one, one Bible's quizzing moment I had that really, like, I think made this all come together for me was reading uh, in the book of James in the New Testament, which is uh, James is an epistle that's sort of like a, a New Testament thing that comes after the Gospels. If you're not a church person, none of that matters. It doesn't, who cares? But anyways, there's a, there's a bit in James, James 5, where James says, listen, you rich people and wail because of the misery that's coming to you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you. You've hoarded wealth in the last days and the wages you failed to pay your workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. And that Bible verse, I think is wild. You know, when you think of Christianity, when you think of, I mean, going to church, it's rarely as pointed as that. You know, you think you have, a, you have maybe some kind of, there's like a conception of like a fire and brimstone kind of preacher, or there's, you know, kind of like a lovey-dovey, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of preacher. But there's something else, I guess, I found in the Bible that is, you know, pursuant of justice for all people. And anyways, when I was trying to take the Bible very seriously, like evangelical pastors have always told me to do, I end up finding that the Bible is at least sometimes... <laughs> A uh, a pretty big book that is pro-worker, that's pro-poor people, that has something pretty prophetic to say against rich people. So that led me, I think, to where I am right now. As a bad Catholic myself, that's someone who was raised Catholic and have gone in and out of the church, yet I've never lost the interest of the story of Jesus Christ and how he actually challenged the powers that be, both within culture, within finance and within the political powers. And I've always wanted to orient my life around Catholic social teaching and social justice. And 
I really appreciated your article starting with a great quote from Martin Luther King. And it, it states, we would have a better world if Christians would stop talking so much about religion and start doing something about it. But the problem is that the church has sanctioned every evil in the world, whether it's racism or whether it's the evils of monopoly capitalism or whether it's the evils of militarism. And before I ask you why you wanted to write this particular article, I just wanted to also mention that I've been listening to another podcast called The Church Dismantled, which this person is discussing how and why people are leaving the church. And it's because the church no longer meets the needs of so many people. And it's God that's actually dismantling the church, which is kind of a very provocative kind of angle to maybe have a rebirth of the church that actually becomes more meaningful for so many people who may not currently find meaning in the church and are not attracted to it. So that's a little side note, but I love the way you start your article. And, and why did you want to write this piece? Yeah, well, let's see. I have a, a long life with lots of sort of career changes in it. For a little bit, I was a, a PhD student and I finished my PhD and I went to teach at a university and I did that for a bit. So my expert mayor of expertise is media studies. And I study a lot of things with regards to like how social movements use media kind of to their advantage. And I don't know, I, I left academia kind of in, in search for something else <laughs> that would be interesting to do. And I started uh, working as a staffer for the fight for 15. I was kind of locally working in St. Louis, kind of making media for them and doing videos, other things. And, you know, I. I think like that experience of being in, in a labor movement that, that is working to organize low wage workers, people who have no right to a union currently because of extremely rigged labor laws that experience really kind of led me to see exactly what the Bible's talking about, but maybe in a more like explicit way, you know, the thing I just read a minute ago about James five, it's great. And it's kind of, you know, giving you some hypothetical workers who are not being paid for their labor. But when I was working with Fight 15 and we were organized fast food workers, I was seeing that literally on the ground, right? Literally people who would show up to work at McDonald's, they would punch in and, you know, they'd get told they have to work through their break or they just wouldn't see some of those wages or whatever, right? And what I was seeing in, in the world was exactly what the Bible is kind of prophetically talking about, which I guess made me, you know, want to pull this out for other people of faith. There's a trend, I think, if you go to like a labor rally or whatever, somebody's on strike, chances are you'll see a pastor there speaking. And yeah, maybe not, maybe a different faith leader, whatever, but it's pretty common. But it, it always kind of strikes me as like bizarre that you know, these pastors are showing up, but I don't see any other like church people. I don't see the entire congregation. So I, I really want, I want to see that in the world. And uh, there's this sort of like new wave of, I think, labor organizing going on with Starbucks, with Amazon, with, you know, all kinds of other people. And I, I just thought, well, like, you know, I, I need to, I should, if, if I think that's true, I should probably just tell people. So I, I wrote this article and, and basically that's the idea, right? Is that Christians have a moral obligation to show up for people who, you know, the Bible would call the least of these, but who, you know, otherwise we would recognize as being poor or low income or low wage workers. I think those are the people that we need to show up for. The, the Bible tells us we should. And I, I think that's true. Jesus came to the earth as, as a poor person, not as a rich CEO. So that, that kind of speaks to me. And I, I want other people to know that. There's also another angle of it too, though, where I think that there is sort of strategic value with faith communities being involved. I, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, workers win unions, not churches showing up to rallies, but I still think it's important strategically to have that community support, to let everyone know that like, there's a whole bunch of people here that they're going to be mad if you, if you mess around too much. Yeah, and you cite Jane McAlevey's uh, post-mortem of the Bessemer 
vote union drive, the, the first one, and that there were heads of churches who may show up, but the rest of the congregation wasn't there. And we are all workers and we can't just isolate our organizing just within the workplace, but it's, it's within the community as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that Jane McAlevey article was really interesting because there was so much labor reporting around the religion angle, around that, that first Bessemer run. And it was cool. I liked it. I thought it was all really neat hearing about the sort of like faith stories of the organizers or some of the pastors who were involved. It was really cool. But I mean, at the end, she's she's right. I mean, like the community support wasn't there. I mean, I guess among other things, I don't know, there's a lot, a lot to unpack about that Bessemer run and I'm probably not the best person to talk about it. But all to say, yeah, I think there's some kind of strategic thing there that it's great if your pastor shows up, but everyone should show up, I think. Well, you also, in this article, brought to my attention the Jesuit liberation theologian, Father Ignacio Alicuria, if I'm pronouncing yeah. that right, and in his book, uh, Systematic Theology, and talk about this idea of Christian soteriologies. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's good. A lot of annoying big like theology words that are, they mean something really specific and, I don't know, not words we usually use, but... Yeah. So in Christianity, there's this idea called soteriology, right? And soteriology is like the theological, the theological conversation around like, how does Jesus save people, right? I mean, you see bumper stickers that say Jesus saves or people holding signs or whatever, all kinds of wild stuff like that. But like, how does that really happen? Like, what are the mechanics? What's the story there? And, you know, some Christians, it's really cut and dry. Um, there's a, a really popular theory in theology called substitutionary atonement. And the idea is that like, well, when Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus takes all of the sins of all of the world kind of onto himself and he dies as like a sacrifice, somebody in our place. And I don't know, that's not, <laughs> I'm not a theologian myself and uh, maybe not very theological minded, but that is an explanation that does not sit well with me or doesn't make a lot of sense to me which is fine. It doesn't have to, I guess, but you know, it, it gets you into some hot water. Like, well, if Jesus and God are the same person, why is God making do this? There's like a lot of like weird moving parts. Okay. But a Curia, this Salvadorian, a Spanish Salvadorian Jesuit, he's on the scene writing in El Salvador in like the 60s, 70s and 80s. He dies in 1989 and he's killed during the Salvadorian civil war. But he's writing the, um, these essays, the, the one that in particular that I've been talking about in this article is called the crucified people and he's kind of doing this meditation on christian soteriology or what does it mean for jesus to save people and he instead of like asking like that kind of question about soteriology about you know does jesus take on our sins or do something else or whatever he actually kind of like tries to make the the crucifixion of jesus something that's more like material to us and basically you know if you go to church you know, you, you, we, you hear a certain story about the, the crucifixion of Jesus and it kind of sounds mystical and it's like magical as this guy, he dies and then something happens and he comes back to life and like, isn't that wild? But what Aecuria does in this essay is say like, well, Jesus dies and you have to think about that for a hot second, not as like a mystical thing that happens in the context of church, but something that actually happens in the world. People being crucified by the state, by the powers that be, by corporations, the question about the crucifixion isn't how Jesus saves us, but rather why he's being crucified in the first place. 
So he wants you to imagine maybe like what it would be like to be there. If you, if you saw somebody being crucified, like how would you feel? What would that, what would that look like? And, you know, you, you think about it a bit differently than you do in church where you kind of comes with the whole sort of magical story. And, and the interesting point though, that Aikuria makes is that he, he says that, you know, Jesus is crucified for the exact same reasons that poor and working people everywhere are crucified, that the same powers that crucified Jesus are, are the, the same powers that crucify, you know, low wage workers fighting for a union or, you know, poor people fighting for, you know, rent <laughs> or uh, relief from rent or relief from debt or whatever. So A. Curia kind of comes up with this idea of Jesus belongs to a particular class of people in history called the crucified people, which means that that there's this class of people in the world that because of the way that our, our society is set up and structured, they are necessarily crucified by it. You know, they are the organizers of the world. They are the poor of the world. They are the people who are, are making trouble and the, the, the powers that be in the world, the powers and principalities use church language, right? They get crushed, they get crucified. So, you know, when we talk about Jesus on the cross and like why he's crucified, it's not because of like a magical story. It's because that's what always happens to people like Jesus. That's what always happens to people who are troublemakers in the world, who are trying to organize and fight back. They get crucified. And the, the conclusion of A.A. Curious piece is like, well, what would you, like, what would you do if you saw Jesus on the cross? What would you do if you, if you saw a fellow worker on a cross, if you saw a friend on the cross? Because you do every day. You, we always see people being crucified. And, you know, the conclusion is you can bear witness to it in ways that are radical and revolutionary. You can try to take them down off the cross. You can try to stop crucifixions from happening in the first place. You can rally around those people and say, you know, no more killing of senselessly of people through the, the slow crucifixions of low wage work, through union busting, through, you know, lack of healthcare and, and so on. So I, I guess that's the, the sort of theological angle of the whole thing. I love it. And it also, you know, really forces Christians to see that these poor people are, as you, you put so eloquently in the article, the system's rigged against us and is slowly crucifying poor and low-income people through low-wage jobs, a lack of healthcare, high rents, ecological devastation, systemic racism, war, I would say, on, on top of that as well. And I, I just really think that the more we can bring that lens into the church and go into the church to even organize the churches, to raise this awareness and bring in labor leaders and things like that, to connect to the local struggles within and around every church will have impact and those seeds will grow to, to beautiful things. And in a previous article in September, 2021, titled uh, Episcopalians on Strike, you talk a little bit about a kind of a case study of what happened when people get involved from the religious community in labor struggles. Could you just talk a little bit about what that was? Yeah, for sure. So I wrote that article for a magazine called The Bias, which is hosted by the Institute for Christian Socialism, which is a pretty neat organization. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like I mentioned it a few minutes ago, I was involved in organizing in St. Louis with the Fight 15. And you know, to, to every single action, every single strike, everything, any anything that we were doing out in the world, right? This the same group um, of pastors would show up, and most of them were Episcopalian, which I think ended up drawing me into going to their church, which is I don't know, uh, fine. <laughs> that was pretty cool for me at least. And they they would show up time and time again, and they would they would call up McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's for treating their workers wrong. And I think that there's a real power in, in doing that. Right. And there's something cool. I think about hearing religious leaders speak on that. I mean, 
they don't have to be Christians. I think that like, I mean, in all kinds of different examples, there are plenty of really fantastic faith leaders in the Muslim community and in the Jewish community and elsewhere who are are happy and willing to speak up of these things. In my community, particularly though, is these, these wild Episcopalians. Anyways, so it, there's, a, there's a value and a strength for them to show up and say like, you know, what you're doing is bad. Not just, not just like, because these like rabble rouser, like labor organizers say it's bad, but because like me, a moral authority, a, a priest um, in a church say it's bad. And not just bad in the sense that like, well, you shouldn't do that. It's not kind, whatever. But in the sense that like, that's the core of the gospel. Like what you're doing, exploiting poor people is, is the very core of the gospel. You're the people that you're exploiting are people who are exactly like Jesus. They're uh, the people who Jesus cares the most about. And like, you know, not only is this priest yelling at you that he's mad, but like maybe God's mad too. And you should think about that. There's, there's a moral power there. I mean, you know, maybe the, the owners of the McDonald's franchises in my town, they maybe don't care very much, but I think that there's uh, something interesting happening there. Um, I've talked to a handful of workers about that particular topic, like how they feel when, when pastors or priests show up and they always feel pretty excited about it. You know, even if they're not like really religious themselves. I think they just get excited that somebody, you know, from the larger community is there. It's like really kind of bring the, 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 the drama of church out into the strike line. There's a, there's a power to all that, I think. And I, I have to ask, because I'm not too deep into the socialist movement in Maryland, there's a lot of progressive groups that I'm very active with, and I have a lot of socialist friends, but I do know also that there can be a very atheistic, hardcore, like communist socialist side. Have you ever seen any issues with that when you try to bring up organizing the church? You know, not really. Sometimes, you know, you run into cranks on the internet who have something to say about that. That's fine. They're welcome to it. Never in a real organizing space has it ever been something that anyone has been upset about or like confronted me about. I have plenty of comrades who are socialists, who are communists, who are atheists, you know, and all of those things. And they don't really care. I think they, you know, they see maybe, maybe a, a bit cynically even <laughs> that there's a utility to it, right? That like, that religion could be a really motivating, powerful force. And even if they themselves don't believe in that, you know, you might see the value in, in using it to, to mobilize people. But yeah, I mean, I've never, never particularly had anyone be <laughs> rude or even weird about it. They don't, most people seem pretty open. Yeah. And I also just listening to uh, one of your podcasts where we are in the season of Lent or in the, it is uh, finishing and how the filet of fish uh, at McDonald's <laughs> could be used by certain Christians who aren't trying to eat meat and are eating a filet of fish while some of the workers are, you know, making less than $15 an hour and, and the irony of that. It's just totally, totally. Yeah. It's, it's not great. I don't love it. <laughs> so you also provide some ideas of what people can do. Could you talk a little bit about those? I mean, people should definitely go read the article themselves, but what are some things that people can do to help organize the church? Yeah. So first I want to, I guess I want to say something about organizing the church in particular. I guess like to me, that seems like such an important way to frame the, what, what I'm asking people to do is or, organizing the church. I'm sure it's no surprise to anybody listening to this, but there is a, I mean, an incredibly awful and disheartening wave of like white nationalist Christianity right now. And I think that, you know, the only solution to that kind of thing is organizing against it. And churches are, you know, 
no exception. So I think organizing churches against, yeah, white nationalism, against awful types of exploitative capitalism, all really important things. So organizing, I think, is exactly the right word. I think if if, if people are interested in, in doing this particular work or have some kind of attachment to a faith community, that's exactly what you have to do is have, have lots of one-on-one -on -one conversations, really talk it through with people, try to mobilize your congregation and, and, and so on. But yeah, at the end of the article, I am providing a handful of ideas that maybe just might get people started in the right direction when it comes to these things. And, you know, it's complicated because organizing is always really context dependent and, you know, you have a lot of things, a lot of things to consider, but a, a few ideas I, I think are just really like creating a connection between your congregation, your faith community and whatever labor unions exist in your area. I think that's maybe a great step one, reach out to them, send some emails, see what they've got going on, see if there's a way that you could help, if there's a way that your community could help in particular. A great first step is just emailing people, calling people, asking them what's up. Labor organizers, they'll talk to you. I mean, at least I hope they will. I'd be kind of upset if they didn't. I mean, you can you can even go beyond that though. Churches are always holding all kinds of events, you know, that are kind of like community focused. Churches should invite organizers to come speak at your event, organize workers to come speak at your event, ask an entire organizing community to come talk to your church about like what's going on in, in a union drive or whatever. You can do things that are kind of boring, but still important. Like you can write letters to your local state and, you know, state and, and, you know, like federal nation, national politicians and tell them what you think about exploitative labor laws. You know, maybe they won't respond very well to you. I live in Missouri, so they don't ever respond very well to me, but you know, my faith community, we still do it. It's fine. It's a good exercise. I think you can also like, you know, when there is a strike, when there's a dispute, when there's a day of ac action about something like get people to show up, even if it's not everybody, right? Even if it's just a handful of people from your church, get them to come with you, hold a sign, yell at McDonald's, yell at whatever uh, corporation is explaining workers. That's great. But you can also like set aside a portion of your, your church's budget to give to things like, you know, like strike funds or, or whatever it might be in your community. I think, I think you can also, you know, ramp up things from there, right? Like the last thing on the list I, I wrote was uh, like phone zaps. Like, you know, you can organize your faith community to call a particular employer if they're giving workers a hard time or something. For that kind of thing, I would suggest definitely getting guidance from uh, unions, from, from the workers, you know, themselves. That seems important. So uh, maybe to kind of encapsulate all that, there's a lot of things you can do, but I think there is sort of like a scale, a scaling level of severity or intensity. And step one is just like, maybe talk to a few people who are interested at your church who might be receptive to this kind of thing. See if they would be interested in like maybe starting a committee or a club at your church that's particularly about these issues. And then just start reaching out to unions to see if there's any way you can help. And I think that maybe is a, is a first good step to organizing your own church and, and kind of being there for the people in your community. Yeah, definitely. And I think even trying to get the background of the religious texts, like Catholic Labor Network cites certain encyclicals for at least the Catholic community for within the Pope, talking about pro-labor statements within the Catholic Church. And I think most Catholics aren't even aware of that. And sure. maybe even most priests aren't aware of that. So even trying to get some Bible studies, raise the consciousness within the church too, and then continue to connect the, the muscles and things like that to the rest of the community and to the struggle. Yeah. Totally. You know, there's a really cool thing. I don't want to talk up my, my town too much, but I do like St. Louis a whole lot. There's a great labor organization here called Jobs with Justice. You know, it's like there's Jobs with Justice everywhere, but there's one in Missouri and there's a pretty strong contingent in, in St. Louis. Something that they organized for a long time and um, it's kind of taken a backseat because of the pandemic, but they used to have a monthly labor faith breakfast where union people and then like clergy and church people kind of come together 
and you know they would they would kind of have these conversations not just about sort of theology but you know that was kind of part of it but also just like making those kind of connections between faith communities and labor i think th those are cool ideas so you know all that to say like maybe some of this work is already happening in your community you have to just know where to look or something yeah so with the remaining time that we have left how should people follow you and what what do you have cooking coming into the spring and summer yeah, people can follow me on Twitter, um, Matt underscore Bernico. I'm there. I also have a podcast I do with my friend, Dean Detloff. Um, you can follow us on Twitter as well at the underscore Magnificast. We post all of our episodes on Twitter, but you can also subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or whatever. Yeah, so right now on our podcast, we've been kind of focusing on kind of pulling out the interesting texts and ideas of Lent and Holy Week and Easter Sunday and kind of how they might relate to politics. And uh, yeah, we've been, we've been doing a lot of that. I don't know what comes next. We're really disorganized and uh, <laughs> we need to maybe do some planning to see what we're going to do after Easter. We have not thought that far ahead. Life of a podcaster while <laughs> having a day job and a family and everything else. That's right. Yeah. And a writer. So I'm going to put that in the show notes, how the audience can follow your podcast and follow you on Twitter as well. And uh, just leaving the audience with one of the sentences you wrote, the central purpose of organizing is for regular people to use their collective power to correct injustices. And uh, you really go through that. And it, if for those people who are religious minded and for those people who are not religious minded, I still think that people can get a lot from this article. So Matt Bernico, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it.